Have you ever wanted a safe space where you can just exist? Where, for a moment in time, you can be you with all the intricacies and parts of you that people don't always understand? Welcome to In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. I'm your host, Zach Stafford, and each episode, we create a space to be you, all of you, in all your messy and complicated glory. Every story shares what it means to be a Black and Latinx man living with different hardships, whether it's the struggle of identity, discrimination, or health, and how they've managed to push forward despite the circumstance. We hope to get closer, even if just a little, to a road of healing and understanding. Hi there, welcome back. Today, I want to talk about something that I think we all have, and that's confidants. Those people we reach out to when we're down, the first name in your contacts that you share good news with, the friends and family that are there for the ups and downs. And I think we can all agree that sometimes these people come via communal spaces, the stores or restaurants we frequent, a favorite sports bar, or even the barbershop. These spaces tend to be the heartbeat of a neighborhood, allowing people to congregate in a place where they can freely be themselves. Our guest today, Lorenzo Lewis, is a man that wears many hats. He's an entrepreneur, mental health advocate, motivational speaker, author. His resume is extensive and impressive. He's best known for taking the idea of safe spaces one step further by turning the quintessential barbershop into a place of healing through the Confess Project. But before he thought of this creative way of bringing mental health to his community, Lorenzo had to go through some tough times in his early years. Young Lorenzo was someone who was really hurt and someone who was confused, someone without parents, someone that realized that he was born in a prison, someone that knew he had scars and that had a lot of issues, anger and impulsivity, and just things that was honestly very scaring than anything. Knowing that I was very different from a lot of other youth, my mother... You know, at the time, was involved in a lot of different things. Um, I believe prostitution was one part of it, uh, drug involvement. She was incarcerated. And during her stay, um, I was born, all right? So there in New Jersey um, is where, you know, my life started inside of a prison cell. My father at that time was incarcerated in D.C. And so two parents incarcerated, a kid coming out. My uncle stepped in so that I wouldn't get taken up by the system. And so brought to Arkansas, lived a life with external siblings, um, and really was treated like I was their own. I had my own siblings, and they were separated as well with other family members. You know, I was confused. I was angry. You know, even in, you know, I, I still attend therapy now, and a part of that was me processing the fact that, um, how they were and why did we end up in the situation that we're in? You know, why did my brother have to live with my grandmother? Why did my sister have to stay with my other grandmother? Why did I have to live with my aunt? And why did we all have to have other siblings? In fact, we had ourselves, right? And so those were challenging times. But, you know, again, very thankful for my aunt and my uncle who took me in, that really was able to nurture me, give me a family, um, allow me to escape parts of poverty, uh, which is very inevitable for black youth. And so now that I'm a parent, I really realized my parents was really dealing with 
their own brokenness from mm-hmm. maybe their experiences with their mothers and fathers and their upbringing. They grew up in small towns in Arkansas and Alabama, rural Arkansas and Alabama. So I can only imagine some of the hurt and some of the poverty that they faced and some of the inadequacies as a young person that they went through. And I think they were really trying to find themselves, you know, and they were just on a path and so happily had children. You know, as a youth, I made bad decisions. So I really gave my grace to my parents and really... It took a long time to get there. I'm at peace knowing that they came and did what they needed to do and that a part of my life is now sharing with the world, whether that's parents and families, that, hey, we have to give grace to others too. All throughout his childhood, Lorenzo battled with the aftermath of this brokenness. He didn't know it at the time, but he was battling through major mental health issues like depression. But there was a place where Lorenzo began to find grace and forgiveness that he would carry with him through adulthood, his aunt's beauty salon. Some of the favorite memories, you know, getting off the school bus, you know, it was about four or five stations there, right? It was about three or four women. There was one gentleman there by the name of Sylvester. I'm actually in contact with him to this day. And he was my first mentor, one of the first male barbers, only male barber in the salon, but also one of the um, first mentors that I identified. I just remember... Those conversations that we had every day, also from just the communication, you know, seeing people, you know, whether they had a home or somewhere to go to, they would come into the beauty shop, they would ask to use the phone, they would ask for food, you know, my aunt and them would help them. Um, They would help people get, you know, they need to catch a bus fare, they would give people money out of their pockets. I really saw that anybody there had a village if they came in there and they really expressed that they needed support. They want to know that they're heard and they're seen. So what is it about salons and barbershops that make Black people not only want to go there for, you know, haircuts all the time, of course, but also to find community as well? Yeah, you know, historically, being a barber was one of the professions that they could perform on their on their owners, their masters. In addition, that time progressed, you know, barbershops, the brick and mortars are some of the only ownership opportunities one of the fastest ways to build a generational wealth, long-term ways to build a generational wealth, barbershops and salons are passed down through family lineages. Ultimately, in the civil rights era, barbershops were used in the black community as voting hubs. The NAACP and the Panthers movement offering food to the community and ensuring that people were getting information about what was going on in the community was coming through the barbershops. And so even during the civil rights era, when organizing and black freedom and, and people being able to have the liberation that they could have started through barbershops, right? And so... It's just been a natural place, and I think it's been one of the most beautiful opportunities that we can really take a step further and, you know, talk about things like mental health and well-being and, and all the other things that we're accomplishing in the barbershops. It was at this point that Lorenzo started to put two and two together, that barbershops and salons could be places of culture, where stories were shared from one generation to the next, but also places of healing. You know, as a kid, I remember, you know, witnessing women, you know, really pour their hearts out to my aunt about their lives and about the things that they were going through, about, you know, their divorce and and different things that was just going on at work. And I just can remember, like, you know, my aunt, like, really 
you know, praying with people and motivating people and saying, hey, you can get through this. And this is, you know, even giving them whether that was some kind of a scripture or giving them some kind of an empowerment right there in front of people. It was really powerful. I took it for granted as I was smaller. But now that I really think about it, that was probably the most transformational therapy session <laughs> that you can have with someone while doing their hair, right, or cutting their hair. And so even when I was a kid sitting in Sylvester's chair, you know, with my small feet dangling from this chair, right, I would always talk to him about what I want to be when I grow up. And he would empower me and say, oh, you can do that. And, man, stay out of trouble and make sure that you're not doing drugs when you go to school and make sure that you're hanging with the right people. I mean, that's mentorship at its finest, right? And so a lot of young kids across the country went through that same experience like I did. I just don't know if we ever captured it that way. And then now we can really sit back and take time and reflect and say, hey, this is a powerful transition that's happening in this moment. And that I think we should also take it further, right, and do more through the barber chair. Yeah. You know, when I first heard about your work, it made me think about how my dad used to cut my own hair in the bathroom. And that was the time where he'd give me lessons about life and what to do and all that. So what is it about getting your hair cut that makes people so at ease to start having these hard conversations? Because typically getting your hair cut can be stressful if someone doesn't know what they're doing. So why, what is it about us as Black people that really find ourselves calmed by the process of getting a haircut? You know, the clippers and razors are one of the most intimate close proximity for men particularly that we ever come in contact with probably outside of playing sports. I mean, someone putting a razor or a sharp blade against your head, that intimacy, that connection that's captured is really a powerful, powerful opportunity for growth, for expansion of that person. And so I think that in itself, that intimacy allows people to really let their guards down, you know, you know you're going to look good after this grooming session. It really creates, I believe, an, a powerful opportunity for the barber and the client to really do more good for themselves and their community. When someone walks out of the barbershop, they feel renewed. They feel rejuvenated. They feel empowered. They have more confidence simply just by giving them a haircut. This opportunity to not only look better, but also feel better, gave Lorenzo an idea as he battled through his own turmoils. He would make the barbershop, a place he knew so intimately, a valuable resource for his community. I didn't really address my own therapy till my later 20s. I was roughly coming out of college. I had a daughter. At that point, I had finished two college degrees. But I really felt lost. I felt really broken. I felt deprived. And I didn't feel happy. You know, the work that I was doing, I didn't feel that it was really uplifting me and encouraging. And then I really leaned in into thinking about the time I had spent working in the mental health facilities, my own story. And that's what allowed me to really arrive to this place of talking about mental health, my own story as a public opportunity. Um, and then that now turned into an organization that's able to employ barbers and employ people to doing this work. And so I think I really want to arrive because of my own journey. And I really feel that vulnerability was at the point of all of this. If I was not willing to be vulnerable, I don't believe that we would be where we are. I don't believe that I would have even empowered my staff those around me to do this work. And so I think as leaders, we really have to lean in on vulnerability first because I think it really builds comfort and trust amongst so many other people than what we probably may take for granted sometimes. 
The Confess Project is a national grassroots movement that's committed to building a culture of mental health for black men and boys and their families. My vision of the organization is to ensure that every young black boy and man between the ages of 6 and 35 is seen and heard, and that truthfully this will become an opportunity to expand nationally and internationally to other men, uh, men of color, and just individuals across our country that can really relate to our work, that it will be seen as a way to, you know, alleviate poverty and to increase mobility for themselves and their families. Because we know that when one has a positive mental health, that they have a positive trajectory on life. And so we're committed to building that culture of mental health so that we can ensure that life is seen in the most positive and best ways possible. You said two words that really stuck with me. They were seen and heard. Why do you think Black men aren't seen and heard today? I believe that there's a lot of clutter. You know, when you think about the world, right? Black men having to show up to protect, to serve, to be there for each other, to be there for family members, to take care of sick family members, to defend themselves, to watch themselves in media be torn apart, killed. You know, just so many negative narratives. And so... I believe also black men historically have been raised to really be strong, right? In single parent homes, to do more, to show up more, to lead more. You're not able to really be seen and heard when you are giving away so much of your time and your energy. And so I believe that we allow for our work and what we do to take care of yourself, right? So we increase opportunities around wellness, yoga, therapy, whatever that may be to saying that in order for you to continue to give much as you give to your clients, you must give to yourself first, right? That you must be the most precious object in your life and that's yourself. And so a lot of times, even with barbers, you know, they're cutting hair at a rapid speed. They're making money. They're going home to take care of family and they're listening to people's problems all day in and out throughout the week. And so we also are teaching them about wellness, about, you know, hey, how to get a therapist, you know, how to, when you're taking a break, how to shut off. You know, we have people on our teams that are able to help them with mindfulness and different things that can help them and their clients, right? And these are just everyday things, so. What does training look like for these barbers and Talk to me more about how there's just no Black people present within mental health services at all. Like, my therapist isn't Black. And this big gap around finding services for people that look like us in the world. It's a really authentic transaction that happens between active listening, you know, really showing barbers and those how to lean into active listening, validation, you know, how to validate one's feelings and emotions, and positive communication, you know, how to communicate in a fair way where those really feel that they have their their right of way to being heard and being seen, and mental health stigma. How do you reduce stigma? How do we understand the negative language that ties into saying, oh, you're weak? How do we, you know, eradicate that language and, and lift those up? And also to not judge. And so, and also, you know, how do we get people to the resources and help that they need? You know, how do we help to refer someone? All of this encompasses in our training that happens a little bit over an hour's time. And we do this virtually and in person. We've done this with a thousand barbers over 40 cities across the United States. We recognize that there's about two to three percent of African Americans that identify as psychiatrists in the United States. And so right now, the work that we're doing, we truthfully know that it's important for not only barbers to be on the front lines, but that, in fact, it is very vital for us to, as well, partner with therapists, 
systems and help to build ecosystems of coalitions of people that can help folks at the most intermediate way, like listening, like validating, like giving just resources and helping people to understand that they're seen. And I think that's really important. Most people that go and sit in a barber's chair within the Confess Project are no strangers to receiving advice during their hair services. But how do you break past the notions that can make the barbershop harmful, turning homophobia, misogyny, and stigma on its head? We have our core areas that we really focus on, and I think that's really important that we lean in on that 100%. But we also make it very clear during our trainings, during our focus groups that we offer that, you know, hey, this is what we need to get out to the masses, and this is what we don't need to get out to the masses. And I believe that's where we really stand in. You know, a part of this is barbershops are the most unapologetic place in the Black community. I mean, that people can really be themselves. They can say what they want to say, and they should be able to want to do that because, you know, there's so many institutions and areas in life where we have to restrict ourselves. We have to feel like we have to role play and play into a narrative that's not true. And so we, in fact, really want people to just know that they can have it hanging out, but that when, in fact, that there's time to really focus on the positive that that's what we really show up and do this work. And so, you know, even times that we're doing our trainings, you know, I recognize that there are people that are having vocal language and sometimes there are children there. And, you know, unfortunately, somebody may be a part of that conversation that may not have should have, or maybe somebody don't agree about something. They're going back and forth about a sports argument or something that's going on with the police and, and the community. I think that those are natural things that need to happen. I think that what we do with mental health is showing people that we can have balance. We do need to have self-control. And that also we have resources that are available. This is not a one size fit all. Everybody has a unique way of being seen and heard. And I think that some people are just going to show up as themselves. That is brilliant because my biggest issue with a lot of community conversations or community interventions is that it has this expectation for people to be perfect when they show up. But most people are very imperfect or people just don't know better. And the better way to engage with any person, whether you don't agree with them politically or ideologically or anywhere, is to meet them where they're at. And it sounds like that's what you're doing every day without shame or stigma. You know, we, we've had a lot of people even push back to mental health shouldn't, you know, obviously take place or we shouldn't be, you know, really engaging. But, you know, the truth of the matter is we're talking about a population of people that have poor access to services, that are in poverty, that are highest, you know, mass incarceration, and the list goes on and on. You know, we, we've had barbers that's a part of this work that totally did not agree with this when we started. And then they may have reached out and said, you know what, man? I had a family member, they're on drugs. You know what? You were right. I need to figure out a way that my family can deal with this now. But what if we never crossed paths with that gentleman? Like he would have no way of really connecting it. And maybe he would have went off and exploded with somebody because he was upset. And so now he had an outlet. And so that's why, you know, it, it may not be their time, but the fact that this model is in place, it's definitely going to be evident that it would be helpful to someone. Mm, wow, that's incredible. And, you know, you all have not only been successful in doing linkage to care work, but you've been so good at what you're doing that you collaborated with Harvard University to study some of this work. Talk to me about that research and what findings did Harvard find from talking to barbers? The findings that we got out of it, you know, I think it was about roughly 30, 35 barbers comprised of so many states that we've been in that we've worked with. 
And one of the high-level things that we recognize is that barbers can be seen as mental health and suicide prevention gatekeepers and also seen as those who can eradicate interpersonal community violence. We also recognized in that study that the work that we do can really be ramped up into supporting those who are doing work around domestic violence, those that are doing work around community violence, because those barbers are really on the front lines of bringing peace into our communities. And so even though we're there talking about mental health, in fact, there was also studies there where, you know, Men talked about how they stopped someone from going to commit a crime. They wanted to commit a homicide or take someone's life because of something that happened. And that Barbara was able to stop that, right? Because of the relationship. You know, we recognize in some of our studies that sometimes it's not just a therapist going into the barbershop, that it may be a community leader that needs to speak the language. So a pastor or a city council person or someone that's really respected could be very received just as much as a therapist. So although therapists are in demand for giving this work and being clinical and doing their part, I truthfully think we have to understand that the people in these communities really trust the people that they know. And if they don't know you, it's very hard for them to open up to you. And so I think that's where the challenge really comes in, is that we have to know that everybody does not look at the systems and institutions that we know as a way to take care of them. Some people look at them as, oh, no, they're here to hurt me. So everybody has to be armed with the information, right, so that they can help people that may be very hard to reach. And I think that's where we become very powerful because these barbers may be halfway graduated high school. They may be ex-drug dealers or whatever the case may be, but they can save a life sometimes faster than a guy in a white coat. Why is it that you're so committed and get so much, I guess, life out of this work that so many people aren't willing to take on? It's personal to me. You know, I was checked into a mental health hospital at the age of 10 years old after my dad passed away and um, they thought it was just a matter of behavior issues and anger, but I was struggling from depression at an early age, grappling the grief and the issues around his death, not having my mother and father in my life, getting involved in gangs, being incarcerated, being diagnosed with major depression in my 20s. It's personal to me because I never felt that I was truthfully seen and heard and that nobody really, I always grew up feeling that no one really understood who I was or how I felt. And I know that a lot of other black men, black women, black trans folks, you know, it, it, whomever this may be a, a part of our communities feel the same way that I do. And so I want to ensure that not only this story is a way to, to grow, but it's also it's a way for me to speak to my younger self and say that I'm willing to do more to help more people that, that look like me. So. Ooh. That's incredible. And do you feel seen and heard today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I I believe a lot of this work has really helped me to heal tremendously. As being an advocate for mental health, I believe that I've had to really be very critical about my own mental health and also ensuring that um, I'm taking care of myself. And so I think that I've been able to do that. And so I'm really, really grateful that doing this work has really helped me to I think to really look at healing and look at everything that I do and really approach it with intention and approach it from a benefit analysis of how how is it taking care of me and how can I give to others? 
And my final question for you before I let you go back to your life doing a lot of work, important <laughs> work, is what advice do you have for folks who are feeling anxious about engaging in any type of mental health service or talking to someone to get help, especially men? Be optimistic and take it a day at a time. Being open to change and trusting your good. And also know that healing is not linear. You know, healing is a lifetime. You know, that once you've went through a traumatic issue, you go through therapy, you know, you don't just get well. I mean, it's a lifetime journey. It's just like working on a marriage, working on, you know, a fitness goal, working on whatever that may be. Healing is not linear. It's a lifetime's work. And I think once we commit to that and we know that, that we're better off. And we always tell our barbers, they're like, hey, you know, it may not be you. It may be a family member, but in fact, someday, this will be important. Lorenzo highlights an important point when he says that healing is not linear, because like most things in life, it isn't a straight shot. Grief isn't linear, trauma isn't linear, and the solutions to most problems are almost never a one-size-fits-all. But it's how we show up in the world every day, for ourselves and for others, that makes us more successful on our road to healing, despite our imperfections. This has been In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. Find this episode and others on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to share, rate, and review if you enjoyed this conversation. This show is produced by Yvonne Sheehan and mastered by James Foster. Our show researcher is Jordan Raggio, and our writer is Yvette Lopez. A special shout out to our guest, Lorenzo Lewis. I'm your host, Zach Stafford. <laughs>